We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Right now, this team still has very few established or indispensable stars. This version of the U.S. national team still remains very much undecided, which also means there has never been a better time or more opportunity to break in. Fortune favors the bull, and right now there is a window of opportunity for new U.S. talent. But that window will close. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we're talking about the window of opportunity for the U.S. men's national team in our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going to be talking about the prison that is PSG. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about Liverpool and Breakfast Fair. In our Back 3, we'll be talking about the Bundesliga and the curious case of Anthony Robinson. But first, joining me as always is my friend, my colleague, my guiding light. David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good on a windy Monday in Los windy. Angeles. Windy, my goodness. It was. Uh, it, uh, it woke up my children. It woke up everybody. It was, it was crazy last night here in Los Angeles, relative to you know, Los Angeles. When we say crazy, it's nothing compared to most of the rest of the country, whether it comes to temperature or any type of weather situation other than you know, maybe... Uh, fires and uh, earthquakes but yes wind was gusting through as we uh, as we as we slept through the night but before we slept through the night did you like a lot of us uh, watch that um, what's the game called the uh, Super Bowl did you watch that thing I did and Congratulations to the uh, Kansas City Chiefs and congratulations to me who made some money this week you made some money in your pool yeah really I did those? Uh, I went to a Super Bowl party, yes. and we did those squares, and I won quarters number two and three. So uh, I, I did too. Uh, and now this is a number of years that our whole family has done it. I've got my uh, kids at an early age uh, accustomed to gambling. So, uh, but they lost. So I also uh, exposed them to the realities of what gambling can uh, uh, can bring. Did you watch the uh, halftime show? As many people did. Some people don't even watch the game; they just kind of turn in because they want to see. In this case, it would have been Shakira, international superstar. Shakira and international superstar uh, Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo, right? Correct. I I did watch it. And at the Super Bowl party I attended, there was a heated debate over who is the bigger global star, Shakira or Jennifer Lopez. 
I think it is a, it's a good debate. I think it might be Shakira by a just like a tongue wiggle, like not a lot, but just a little bit. I watch it because it's it's always fascinating to me to see not just the performances, but also the the debate that comes out after it. Did you watch it, producer Alex over there? Are you uh, are you still hooked up? Oh yeah, we were here in the office working the whole thing. Yeah. Do you care whether a performer? Okay, and I'm saying performer, and we all assume that they are musicians, but do you care if the halftime performer of a Super Bowl is lip syncing or not? Does it matter to you? I understand the reason why they have to lip sync because you can't fail on that stage like Ashley Simpson at the Orange Bowl famously did. So, Oh, God forbid uh, anybody fails, okay, on a stage, which is basically what all sports are, right? You're out there and you kind of do your thing. So we don't want anybody to fail. We don't want anybody to not live up to what we feel is, is the performance. I think it does matter. It doesn't take anything away from the incredible performance and the entertainment value. As a matter of fact, maybe even more entertainment value than if it had actually been live. But there was a hell of a lot of lip syncing going on last night. Not that anybody should necessarily care. I know I'm a grumpy old guy when I talk about, I talk about this, but I do think that it matters when you are talking about actual actual musicians. And a lot of these folks that are lip syncing are actually very, very accomplished and good musicians and could do it uh, live and have at times done it live and that they choose to do it, as uh, Alex said. I understand some of the realities of a big production like that, but it still kind of sucks when you see it. Does it matter to you? You didn't care. So Prince remains for you the Super Bowl halftime show that all others are judged by. Yeah, you could, you, obviously he wasn't lip syncing because you could hear every ad lib, every different up and down stroke of his guitar was, was audible so you knew he was playing everything. And look, it doesn't mean that Prince doesn't have backing tracks and others, uh, others don't have backing tracks, but at its core is this performer that we are seeing. Now, these two performers last night are also famous for their production and obviously for their, their, their dancing, but it's the musical guest Okay, it is the musician performing at halftime. And so when the actual singing of these songs is is secondary, so much so that they're just singing to a pre-recorded track, it does rub you the wrong way. And I get it. I, I, I get it. I'm, I'm maybe I'm maybe too old school for something like this. But nonetheless, it was still a spectacular performance. Do you, who, where did you come down on the debate on which one is bigger when you guys were having that last night with your crew? Well, my argument was that J-Lo's uh, celebrity is not necessarily correlated to music. You know, she might be the, the more all-around famous person, but certainly a bigger musical star is Shakira, right? I don't know. I think if you go to some ends of the earth and you say, who is Shakira? I think you're going to find a lot of people that will recognize Shakira over J-Lo. But maybe not. That's why I think it's it's close. Look, regardless, it, was, it wasn't a great game, I don't think, of, of football. It was okay. It wasn't an incredible nail-biter. There wasn't a tremendous amount of, of drama for either side. Uh, the, the performance, I think, was was good. I had no no problem with it. I don't think it's going to live long. In, well, it might live long in the memories of some uh, some though. But did, so you won money, but did you? But did your team that you picked to win win? I know you won in your pool, but I did not have any bets of that sort. Uh, the only thing but I did before was the game, play who, who, who did you want to win, or who did you say was going to win? Maybe that's two different questions, but. Honestly, I did not have a strong inclination either way. It was very Michigan nice. Michigan wasn't playing, right? Uh, no, the Michigan basketball team had beaten Rutgers the day before at Madison Square Garden. Hey, we won't get into that. Listen, get in line, um, okay, for beating up on Rutgers um, in any sport pretty much at this I'll point. I'll just say it was very nice to not have the Patriots in the Super Bowl because I've been having to hate watch Super Bowls the past few years, and I had nothing for or against either one of these teams. I could just sit back and enjoy a good football game. Uh, before we go, any uh, advertisements stand out to either one of you? Uh, did you have anything that uh, really... 
wasn't there was not a, nothing for me. There was nothing crazy last night, or, or nothing where you really said, "Oh, that's." I liked the um, Bill Murray one, but it's kind of how many people watching that actually watched Groundhog Day or even uh, Meatballs, which there was references uh, to those things. But I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, let us know. Let us know about your Super Bowl thoughts, whether it's lip syncing or the Super Bowl ads that appeared uh, as we go on. All right, you ready to light this candle? Yep. Enough Super Bowl. The Super Bowl's done. We move on. Uh, into uh, into other things. All right. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. The U.S. men's national team starts qualifying for the 2022 World Cup this fall. That means it's going to get very real very quickly for Coach Greg Berhalter and company. As Berhalter has tinkered with this team over the last year through a period of unprecedented and undeniable change, one thing has become abundantly clear. Right now, this team still has very few established or indispensable stars. Players whose names you write in pen on the team sheet. Players with a track record of success. In short, players you can count on game in and game out. Now, breaking into the national team is often as much about timing as it is about talent. This version of the U.S. national team still remains very much undecided, which also means there has never been a better time or more opportunity to break in. Sure, there's a natural hierarchy that has developed with the likes of Christian Pulisic and Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney leading the way, but that's more of a reflection of their leagues and teams and even their price tags. Between injuries and relative inexperience at the international level, no player has stepped up to make this team their own and emerged as the undisputed leader or the heart and soul of the team. World Cup qualifying will sort all of that out, and it may not be the ones who we all expect. Fortune favors the bull, and right now there is a window of opportunity for new U.S. talent. But that window will close. When it does, if you play your cards right and you grab hold of that opportunity, you just may find yourself not only part of the U.S. men's national team, but as a new hope leading the U.S. out of the darkness of the past few years. All right, Mossy, there is my State of the Union for this week. And uh, as we know, it's coming on the heels of a U.S. men's national team performance this weekend against Costa Rica, a very young, some would say experimental, but certainly uh, a team from Greg Berhalter with eyes to the upcoming uh, Olympic qualifying. And we got the result. Well, nothing. I thought they played very, very well. But do you, when you think of this U.S. men's national team, even now at this date, after more than a year under Greg Berhalter and after certainly multiple years since the uh, incredible epic failure of not qualifying for 2018. Who do you think of when you first, who comes to mind first when you think of this team? Well, Christian Pulisic. Okay. I think the overriding question is this. At the start of the cycle, you felt like the U.S. needed a a fresh start, new Mm -hmm. faces, young players. If you're a veteran who was involved in the Trinidad debacle, I don't even want to look at you for the foreseeable future. (laughs) As we get into 2020 now and the start of qualifying, do you think it needs to shift into more of a blend of youth and experience? If, if the young players were to all develop nicely over the next few months, would you be comfortable going into the hex with a very young team? Or do you think Greg Berhalter should go out of his way to sprinkle in some veterans? I'm comfortable going in with a young, inexperienced team because I don't think... I don't see the separation that that I would have liked. Maybe I don't know if I would like to see, but I don't see the separation that has happened. So you mentioned Christian Pulisic. We all know about his at times serious and certainly consistent type of injury problems. Uh, you look through the things. Uh, Tyler Adams coming off an injury. Weston McKinney uh, missing significant time because of injury. Josh Sargent can't start. Brooks can't start. So these these players that you think are the 
faces and names, yes, they are, but I don't think they have yet separated themselves where you say they have to be on the team. And that's why I think there's a real opportunity for, for younger players, which some of which we saw this, this weekend. But I'm, I'm still not, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, that we are still so undecided and kind of up in the air. Maybe it is because, like you said, I wanted kind of a, a complete washout and start over. And therefore, that opportunity or that period of opportunity is inherently going to be going to be longer but right now you know when we used to think about the national team in the past it was you know Landon Donovan it was by the way Josie Altidore who certainly should and probably will be part of it but you never know if he's going to be healthy so you can't count you can't count on him uh you know these types of players we used to think about Landon Donovan Clint Dempsey Josie Altidore Michael Bradley these types of players in the past it was you know Claudia Reyna and 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 different players that they epitomized what this team is and I don't think that that has happened and maybe it won't happen until this team does a, a qualification process fingers crossed qualifies and then does well in a world cup well just to set the stage for 2020 20. Greg Berhalter will have the full squad at his disposal twice before qualifying. In right. March, the U.S. will play friendlies against the Netherlands in Eindhoven and Wales in Cardiff. And then in June, you have the Nations League matches against Honduras. And then if they win, it would be either Mexico or Costa Rica Hopefully in the a final. Hopefully semifinal or the final, yep. But the wild card in the equation is the Olympics, which... Uh, I know we're not going to delve into fully until the qualifying rolls around in March, but but we should mention it here. There's been debate over the years about the value of the Olympics. I am somebody that thinks that the uh, qualification failures in 12 and 16, some of the rhetoric has been a tad overblown and overdramatic, talking about lost generations. But I do think this year it is uniquely important, and I know you feel that as well. Yeah, I think, like you said, we are going to talk about this in, in much more depth. because, And that's, and that's because I, I think we both, and I think that the prevailing wisdom out there is that this is huge because it is such a young and inexperienced type of group coming through. We can't afford, we, we never could afford, but certainly at this point, maybe more so than ever, we can't afford to waste what would be a qualifying process within CONCACAF and then an international tournament, a summer spent at the Olympics with a group of players. And by the way, with three extra, uh, over 23 players from an already young roster. So you're looking at a core that could then kick on into uh, World Cup qualifying. So uh, yeah, I think that this, and this, and this uh, lineup this, uh, you know, this, this weekend, I think was reflective of how Greg Berhalter, of how Brian McBride, of how Ernie Stewart, and of how the under-23 coach uh, Jason Kreiss are viewing these upcoming qualifications. And I think there's a lot of pressure on Jason Kreiss and therefore pressure on Ernie Stewart because he has had plenty of time to change the coach. If he doesn't think that Jason Kreiss is the man to get the job done and qualify for the Olympics, he had plenty of time to change that coach, and he hasn't. So this is going to be on him if yet there is another failure in terms of qualifying for the Olympics. But when we saw Ulysses uh, Lanes playing, and we saw Jesus Ferreira up top, and these types of uh, players. Vines at, le- at left back. Cannon, who we've seen a number of times, but continues to get uh, get better and and, uh, and improved. I think there's I think this Olympic team is going to give us a lot to talk about going uh, going forward. But I do think it once again highlights the fact that there is this window of opportunity right now. I didn't necessarily think it was going to be here, but it continues to be here. If I was a young player in that mix of Olympics slash being brought in as a young potential player on the national team, I would be licking my chops. I would be smelling blood for an opportunity to parlay whatever time I get into an opportunity to be on the full team, which maybe in the past didn't exist. 
I was thinking about this this morning. Now, I'm going top of my head here, so if I'm missing something, uh, folks on Twitter, please correct me. But Oh, they will. If the U.S. qualifies for the 2022 World Cup, when they take the field for their first World Cup match in November of 22, that will be their first competitive match against a non-CONCACAF opponent since the 2016 Copa America Centenario. Could that be true? I was thinking about this. They oh, didn't qualify for the 17... Oh, competitive uh, Yeah, format. didn't qualify right, for... They played France. Friendly. But... Didn't qualify for the 17 Confederations Cup. Didn't qualify for the 18 World Cup. Didn't take part in the 19 Copa America. Not taking part in the 20 Copa America. And by the way, I know that bothers you. Yeah, You'd like to see the U.S. play in this Copa America. Why are you riling me up here? And then, and then there's no 21 Confederations Cup. So... Could that be that that would be the first time in six and a half years the U.S. would be playing a competitive match against a non-CONCACAF opponent? And does that gap concern you? Yeah, that concerns me because this, at its core, this is, I know, I know when people say this sometimes, when I say this, people sometimes laugh. At its core, this is about winning a World Cup, okay? This is about the United States men's national team winning a World Cup. Okay, it's not about qualifying for a World Cup. It's not about beating teams in CONCACAF. In order to win a World Cup, you can't just beat your teams in CONCACAF. So yes, and I know people say, well, you gotta you gotta crawl before you walk, especially after the failure of what happened. But let's be honest, that was the epic failure that it was because it was such an aberration, because it was such an anomaly. Which again speaks to the importance of the Olympics, because yep. I know it's an under twenty three competition. The big countries don't always take it that seriously, but still, uh, some of the countries the U.S. would face in the Olympics this summer, their under twenty three teams have more pedigree than most of the countries in Concacaf. Yeah, and and to get back to the you know the opportunity part of this, it is a little concerning, and maybe you, you, until you're actually in the the nitty gritty of a type of tournament. And yes, they've had tournaments that they have played, but. It is a little concerning that nobody has kind of emerged as a figurehead, as as somebody to wrap your arms around that it doesn't have to be even be the the best player, but somebody that is the epitomizes what this new Greg Berhalter-esque uh, endeavor is, the heart and soul of that team, either a leader in the way that he plays or a leader in the way that he holds himself on or off the field or, or does something. Right now, it's still a lot of blah. And you cannot win, and you can certainly not win a World Cup if you just have blah. You mentioned in your monologue Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, and Tyler Adams. I would argue the only question mark with those three is health. Uh, when they play, I think they're pretty close to givens at this point. But isn't that isn't that a big? Qu- I mean, I, I always tell you, obviously, staying fit and being healthy is an actual no, right. is an actual skill. But, but but one player that's at times been lumped in with those three is Josh Sargent, and, and nobody's doing that right now. I know Yin Joy and Stu Holden had a, a big debate uh, over Josh Sargent in one of our Bundesliga shows recently, which, by the way, created a big rift between those two. Ian and Stu are not speaking to each other they anymore. Separate separate dressing um, rooms. And, you know, where are you no on Josh Sargent? Is it fair to say he's one of, if not the most fascinating? US players uh, to watch in 2020 because it really could go either way with him. Yeah, uh, this is why, you know, seeing someone like uh, Ferreira up top for the U.S. national team this weekend, and maybe I'm just searching for it and I'm dying to have somebody else in the mix, but that's why it was at least opened it up and I was, and, and I said, okay, there's a possibility here. That, that was, that was great because, you know, we, we talked about this before. Josie Altador, you just don't know if he's going to be healthy. Okay. So the, the people up top that we're talking about, Josie Altador, you have no idea if he's going to be healthy. Jossie Zardes is Jossie Zardes, the good and, and the bad, but he doesn't scare anybody. And Josh Sargent isn't playing right now. However, and I've said this before, form is fallacy. So just because Josh Sargent isn't playing and when he does play is not doing very much right now with the Bundesliga doesn't mean that he can't come into the national team, can't star for the national team, can't help the team qualify and be that guy up top. 
you want both of those things working in unison, and certainly it helps uh, to be playing well, but it's not a prerequisite. You don't have to have it. And as I said many times, sometimes you are getting on a plane and actually going to a better circumstance when you are going to the national team than the one that you are coming from. And sometimes it's a breath of fresh air and a load off. But so to get back to the blend between youth and experience, would it trouble you if when the hex begins in September, Josie Altador and Michael Bradley are still two of the most prominent figures on this team? Would you look at that as, as an indictment of the young players over the last two years? Uh, I would. I would look at it as a prudent type of safety move from Greg Berhalter, which in and of itself might, it, it might, uh, it, it might make me feel a sense of pain. Cause I, I want, I want someone big and bold. I want them to do, go big or go home right now. And I know you have to be smart and qualifying is the most important thing. And just because you use players in qualifying doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the players that are going to, that you're going to use in a world cup. Bruce, Bruce Arena was famous for saying, had that epic failure not happened, I was going to make a lot of changes and there were going to be plenty of players that were going to uh, come in. So I, I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't uh, begrudge him. And, and I understand why it will be done, but a little piece of me would kind of be ripped out because I do think that there has to be a turning of, of the page. But if that turning of the page is at the expense of not qualifying for another World Cup, I don't think that we can afford to do that. Mossy makes the case. Okay, it's time for uh, Mossy Makes the Case. So my good friend David Mossy makes a case about something out there in the world of soccer. What are you casing for this week, Mossy? My case is that a golden prison is a prison nonetheless. The January transfer window has slammed shut across Europe's top leagues. And we'll talk about some of the moves in a bit, but there's been a lot of focus on a move that didn't happen. Edinson Cavani did not go to Atletico Madrid. He remains at PSG, despite the fact that in the last few days of the window, he and several different family members took turns imploring PSG to sell him. Keep in mind that Cavani has fallen down the pecking order this season. He started only four league games, and his contract is up at the end of the season, so he will leave for free. This marked the second straight window that a PSG star tried to force his way out of the club. You might recall last summer, Neymar tried unsuccessfully to engineer a return to Barcelona. And this upcoming summer, another Spanish club, Real Madrid, is expected to come after another PSG star in Kylian Mbappe. Kylian Mbappe has already accomplished some incredible things in his career, but if, if he is able to leave PSG this upcoming summer, it would be his greatest achievement because there is no more difficult club to escape from in world football than PSG. Actually, the first guy to find this out was Marco Verratti back in the summer of 2017 when Barcelona came after him hard, offering 100 million euros only to be rebuffed. So how should we feel about this? I have no sympathy for Verratti. I certainly have no sympathy for Neymar. And I don't even have any sympathy for Cavani, uh, despite the fact that people have spent the last few days trying to convince me that I should. When you go to a club where money is no object and you enjoy the fruits of that, i.e. a massive salary, then you have to accept that it's going to be harder to leave. If PSG don't feel like it makes footballing sense to let you go, they are not going to let you go, period. There's something liberating about all your players being hired guns. It means you can take a pretty unsentimental approach to every situation. And I'll say this, I know there's a lot of things to criticize about PSG, but I actually find it somewhat refreshing that there's a club that's been able to shift the power dynamic with star players. So good luck to Kylian Mbappe if he does indeed try to force a move to Real Madrid this upcoming summer, because he'll be trying to escape the most notorious French prison since Bastille. Wow. Wow. Okay, so... Words matter, and you are a wordsmith, my friend. Uh, you are a master with words. And so I think 
I think I agree with what you are saying. I don't necessarily agree in the way that you are saying it. I think that using the term prison uh, is disingenuous. It's kind of like using, you know, slavery with reference to a, a uh, you know, some sort of uh, employment. Prison, <laughs> you you do something wrong and you are you are sent there. Okay, the you know first world problem esque type of scenario that you are that you are uh, describing. Uh, I don't look at it as a prison in the same way that I don't look at any of the royals being imprisoned by the the uh, structure that they have put together. I do understand what you are saying in that, and I do agree with the lack of sympathy or empathy when it comes to anybody that does decide to d- does decide to do this. But I look at it much more as a eyes wide open type of situation. They are not going there without the realization, the understanding that it is going to be difficult. And therefore, it is a choice. It is voluntary. It is the farthest thing from a, uh, from a, uh, a prison type of scenario. They can't get there and then claim, well, I didn't realize that it was PSG. I didn't realize that this was going to be the scenario. No, of course. Actually, that term golden prison is one that others have used. So I, I've sort of used it tongue in cheek. But no, I mean, I'm the guy that argued last <laughs> summer that as it related to Neymar, that there's no scenario here where Neymar has a bad life. Right, exactly. You know, he, the, the worst case <laughs> is having to live in Paris and make like $50 million a year. So, you know, and, and the same applies for Cavani. Tuchel came out in the last few days and said, look, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world to play for a PSG. Let's stop feeling sorry. For and, him. and, you know, let's let's look at this prison. You know, it's kind of like when uh, Pablo Escobar got sent to prison. So let's look at the prison that they are actually that they are actually in is it is opulent it is anything is anything but a prison and from a, from a pure soccer perspective mossy it's not as if they have gotten to the place and haven't had the opportunity to be that super club and to not just make a lot of money but to win a lot of things if you look in the past the amount of talent that they have amassed there are 99% of the players that play soccer professionally out there would love an invite to that type of prison yeah, and on Cavani, listen, the bottom line is PSG are still in four competitions this season. They they want to win the Champions League. Mauri Cotti has gone off the boil a bit. Uh, he could get injured tomorrow. So they're a better squad with Cavani in it. And, and the money that Atletico were offering was around 15 million euros. That doesn't mean anything to PSG. So uh, I agree with their decision. I think it's the right move to keep him. And, and, and by the way, there's been this assumption that even if Cavani uh, didn't move now, he would then leave on a free transfer to Atletico. Right. But the way this all played out created something of a rift between Cavani's camp and Atletico. They've been kind of blaming each other the last few days for why this didn't work out, which is good news for an MLS club like Inter Miami because they were sniffing around Cavani late in this window. So, so keep an eye on that. Well, going to Atletico isn't what it used to be. Uh, and when it when it comes to the specifics, uh, we saw is it because of the <laughs> prison that poor Kylian Mbappe is in uh, his reaction coming off the field uh, this weekend? Explain to the folks that what, situation what is very see. interesting. There's a lot of tension between Mbappe and Tuchel. Tuchel has subbed him out of a lot of games this season, which Mbappe hasn't liked. And this past weekend, he reacted very angrily to being subbed out against Montpellier. They had to have a meeting afterwards to clear the air. And the voyeurism emanating from Madrid right now is hilarious because they're sitting back and watching this with popcorn in their hands. And Zidane never misses a chance to talk about how much he loves Kylian Mbappe. Mbappe's been talking about how he idolizes Zidane. There's very much a, like, like to put it in terms like the, the, the office, like Kylian Mbappe is Pam, PSG is Roy, and Real Madrid <laughs> is Jim. So there's like a little triangle there that's going on that's kind of funny. But so, yeah, that's going to be the, the big transfer saga of, of next summer. So we'll but have the, to wait but and see. But the, the theatrical aspect uh, and the drama that is constructed when players come off the field, it's, it's wonderful from us on the outside. And then there's this back and forth where 
coaches will say, well, I, I want my, or, and fans will say, I want that player to show emotion. It means that they actually care. And yet when they do show emotion and they don't shake the hand or they F you off or they do whatever, whatever it is, oh, you're not being respectful. And all that. So a player can't win. If I was a coach, I would just say, look, I don't care if you have the best or worst game. I'm not shaking your hand, okay? I'm not, I might not even acknowledge you. Don't take it in one way or the other. That way, we don't have to we don't have to worry about this this moment that then gets played, especially nowadays, in the in the ability to send that out there. And I said last week, if Atletico Madrid didn't get Cavani, they would be the big losers of this transfer window because in their pursuit of a striker, they allowed this very talented young Brazilian midfielder, Bruno Guimarães, to slip away. He went to Lyon instead. So I really feel that way. Atletico Madrid, to me, were the big losers this month. Uh, the winners were Dortmund in getting Holland and Inter in getting Eriksen. To me, those were the only two moves this January that can alter the dynamic of a title race. And in Dortmund's case, it's the only move that could alter the dynamic of a a Champions League round of 16 tie, which obviously they face PSG. You know, I, I was thinking about this. PSG, the last two seasons, they've topped their group, and then they've drawn a team that at the time of the draw, you look at it on paper and say, okay, they should get past them. And then in the ensuing two months, they've sprung a leak or two. The other team got better either by changing managers or signing a player, just picking up their form. And by the time the tie rolled around and had a different feel and they ended up getting knocked out, it happened last season against United, happened a season before against Real Madrid. Now they face uh, Dortmund, who I still think are a good matchup for them. As we sit here today, I would still pick PSG to go through there, but I was 100% sure when the draw came out. Now with Holland, you must admit, it is a bit of a wild card. Last question for you uh, on PSG, and, import- and more importantly, not more, more importantly, but a part of it is always going to be right now, uh, Kylian Mbappe. So the question to you is, is there a prison break? Is he able to uh, get rid of the shackles uh, that have kept him in PSG and move on? Does it happen this year, this summer, let's say? I would say if they don't win the Champions League, no then they are going to force him to stay there uh, another season. And maybe if they won the Champions League this season and Real Madrid offered enough money, they might soften their stance on that. And, and you know, if, if a club offers you enough money, you can always rationalize, well, we can turn around and spend that money on such and such and maybe come out of it stronger. So All we'll right. see. Well, that. if PSG is a prison, then lock me up, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi. And now we've found out, use that hashtag Ask Mossy, right? Uh, and you send us your questions, comments, concerns out there on the old uh, uh, social media platforms. And we pick a few of them each and every week, as we're about to do right now. Mossy, what do the people want to know? Uh, first up, at Duff and Stuff. Uh, love listening every week to the pod. I always forget to tweet questions. So here's one on my mind. Could an MLS team win CONCACAF Champions League this year? If so, who and why? Interesting. Okay, well, first off, thank you for listening. It's always nice, and thank you for uh, sending in a question. A little refresher as to uh, CONCACAF Champions League. In its current form, no Major League Soccer team, uh, no American soccer team, no Canadian soccer team has ever won it. Yes, there have been, uh, in previous versions of the tournament, champions of CONCACAF uh, from a club level, both DC United uh, and the Los Angeles Galaxy. But in its current form, nobody has done it. So this is this you know, race to the moon, if you will, uh, to plant that uh, MLS flag or American or Canadian flag out there. Plenty of finals, but nothing yet. Uh, right now, you have Montreal Impact, Seattle Sounders, NYCFC and New York City FC, LAFC, and Atlanta United in the, in the tournament right now. Of those teams... I would say LAFC, except they are up against Lyon at the very uh, uh, in their uh, in their matchup right there. I do think I'm so curious about Atlanta United because, and I know the Atlanta folks out there are screaming and yelling as to 
is this team completely being disassembled in front of our eyes with the players that are coming uh, out? I, I don't know. If Atlanta United continues to be the Atlanta United that we have seen over the last couple of years, and that's still a big if, yeah, I think your your money is on them or LAFC if they can get past uh, Leon at the, be, uh, at the beginning. Uh, the other teams, I mean, look, uh, Seattle shouldn't have a problem with Olympia. Uh, in that first round, NYCFC shouldn't have a problem with San Carlos. Montreal Impact Impact could have problems with uh, Costa Rican Saprissa uh, there. So to answer your question, Duff and Stuff, uh, I think that it's if you're you're safe money, I think it's on Atlanta, but with a slash to LAFC. What about you, Moss? What do you think? Well, and uh, just to note, Fox Sports is your home once again for the yes, for next is. three editions of the CONCACAF Champions League, which we're excited about. It's part of this bigger deal we struck with CONCACAF. We also have the next two Gold Cups, 21 and 23, and the men's and women's Olympic qualifying. The women taking place right now. The men, as we mentioned, will be in March. So, yeah, coverage of the CCL starts in a couple of weeks. And, it's fun. Uh, I mean, it's really it's, – it's, it's not where it needs to be yet, but it certainly has grown into something, and especially with that carrot out there of being – the first in its current form, that would be great to once again have someone from the United States or Canada uh, from an MLS perspective, if that's what you want, representing MLS, but it could be any uh, team out there representing CONCACAF as the best club um, out there. And we haven't had that. We've come very, very close. And I think there's a lot of people that's, that think that that is going to be a seminal moment and a game changer, if you will. So we'll see if that ultimately happens. Uh, be honest. Did you request this next question? Because I don't know what it's, what's the question. I went on a rant about this this weekend, which you got a big kick out of it. It seems mighty suspicious that it, it popped up on Listen, this week's pod. Uh, I'm just, you know, this is just serendipity. Here. Okay, at Daniel Loco twenty three. <laughs> if Liverpool end up going undefeated this season, where would you rank them in comparison to the famous Arsenal Invincible? It, it's not even a question. And if you look at the Arsenal Invincibles, there are other Invincibles in the in the in a long time ago, but let's concentrate on the Arsenal Invincibles because that's where the big compare and contrast comes from. If you didn't know, this is a team that went undefeated, and so that's why the comparison is happening right now with Liverpool. Haven't lost in over a year. They have the potential of going undefeated as an EPL team and winning, not just winning, but winning a, a title. It's not even close, all right? This Liverpool team that we are seeing right now, what they are doing is unprecedented in this modern age uh, of the game. Yes, they spend a lot of money. Yes, they are high profile. Yes, they are a super club. But the consistency, and by the way, okay, whether you call them ties or draws, the Invincibles of Arsenal, I think I looked it up, they think they have 12 ties or draws in their undefeated run. That matters to me. Liverpool, they have one. They have one tie, okay? So not only are they going undefeated, but they are winning at a rate unseen by a club. It is not even, they're not even the same stratosphere if you are going to compare these two uh, invincible type S things. Now, having said, Liverpool obviously has to finish off the job, but I'm sorry, if you go into other people's grounds and you find a way to win consistently, that for me is much more of value and should be much higher praised than if you go in there and you're just getting draws and ties constantly. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you delivered my rant for me. So but go I mean, ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, ahead. I've always rejected this notion that the Arsenal Invincibles are the benchmark by which all other Premier League teams are judged by. It's a nice historical note to be the only unbeaten team. And listen, if Liverpool lose a game and the Arsenal Invincibles want to get together and pop the champagne 72 Dolphin style, have at it. But being the only unbeaten team does not automatically confer upon you greatest team ever status. Uh, this is the 25th Premier League season under a 38-game format, and the Invincibles have only the eighth highest point total, which happens when you draw one out of every three games, essentially. So, I mean, to me, it, the City team two seasons ago had 10 more points than the Invincibles and a goal difference, 32 goals higher, plus 79 versus plus 47 for the Invincibles. So, you know, we'll see where Liverpool end up here and we'll compare the numbers, but uh, I don't think when you start talking about a team potentially being the greatest Premier League team ever, that they, the, the the benchmark there is, uh, is necessarily the Arsenal Invincibles. I frankly don't even think they're in the discussion. But uh, even if, by the way, even if Liverpool lose a game, exactly. they are still a better team. <laughs> the whole point is in a league <laughs> campaign is to have the most points. There is a difference between losing, obviously, and winning. But there's a difference between playing not to lose, okay? That, and that's ultimately what I think the Arsenal Invincibles did. Now, they were wonderful, and, and they, were, they were a wonderful team and deserve to be praised and all that kind of stuff. But I just don't even think it's a conversation, Danny... Dan, Danielle, Danny Yell, Danny, Danny L Loco 23. So thank you for that question. It's, it's going to be a conversation because this is what, this is what we do. And it's already over when it comes to the title race anyway, over there in the EPL. And we'll end with, uh, listen, I'm just going to read this question. You're going to answer it and we're going to move on. And then afterwards I'll have a conversation with Alex Dowd about what, what he's trying to accomplish with this podcast. <laughs> I cannot believe this found its way into our rundown this week. At Paddock ND, what does Alexi Lalas eat for breakfast? Ooh. Okay, so I am, first off, I'm a believer in breakfast. I know that there is a big uh, controversy or dialogue going on now about whether breakfast actually is the most important meal of the day or even if it should be had uh, out there. I do, I do believe that you need to get something in your system in order to uh, face the day. It doesn't mean that I don't go for empty stomach runs, shout out to Jurgen Klinsmann, uh, and, and do that kind of stuff. I am a big fan of Jamba Juice, uh, so I, I often stop by there where I'm getting the juices or the uh, smoothie type of things. Uh, I'm a big fan of oatmeal. I like oatmeal a lot, and I'm a big fan of granola-esque type of things. The other day I went in, uh, to a place called, I think it's called Pressed Juice or something like that. You know, one of our uh, bosses and, and uh, colleagues and listener of the show, Zach Kenworthy, went on a a uh, one of these juice cleanses. I mean, he did it for day after day after day. I can't. I couldn't do that. I did one day. They have this. This they sell you this pack of a day long juice cleanse. I did it. I didn't feel any different. Uh, I felt hungry, <laughs> but I didn't feel any uh, any different. So that's the type of stuff that I no. Look, don't 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 get me wrong. I love an eggs Benedict, and I love me some. Uh, uh, are you a pancakes or a waffles guy? If uh, both, you can't do both. If you can have one, probably waffles. Over pancakes? No. Kind of a freak are you? <laughs> Jeez. What about you over there, Alex? What do you like, pancakes or waffles? I'm a uh, waffles guy myself, too. I like the little windows to, like, you can put the syrup in there and the butter. With a bunch of freaks. My goodness. All right, whatever. Anything else, Mossy? No. <laughs> As a segment mercilessly comes to an end. All right, moving on. The back three. Okay, it's time for the back three when we go through some uh, big stories or games or moments out there in the world of soccer. What is in our back three this week, Mossy? 
Well, I mentioned earlier the uh, January transfer window slammed shut across mm-hmm. Europe's top leagues, and there was something of a saga involving a uh, U.S. international. Uh, left back Anthony Robinson looked all set to leave championship side Wigan to go to AC Milan, which, in my humble opinion, would have been a step up. <laughs> That's why we have you here yes. for your expert punditry. He flew to Italy, underwent a medical, and it looked like the deal had been agreed upon. Then, from what I read, it was determined that he needed to take more uh, physical tests, but but the the deadline closed. They weren't able to uh, conduct Somebody those physical up. tests uh, before the window, and so he had to uh, go back to Wigan. What did you make of this crazy story? I don't want to laugh at it, but it is kind of funny. I mean, and at its at its core, it's incredibly sad for the individual player. Keep in mind that this is a player who has had, a, as I say, a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or whatever when it comes to the national team. He's not the answer. And the interesting thing is, had he made this move, it would be very difficult for Greg Berhalter not to have to call him back in to the national team because you have somebody who's, uh, well, at least on the books, maybe even playing at AC Milan. I think he was as perplexed and surprised at this possibility as anybody else and that it didn't go, it, it just sucks because it got it got so far along. I mean, you're getting on a private plane, you're flying to Milan, you're doing the medical, and then you're coming uh, you're coming back. Somebody along the way screwed up uh, on on one of the sides or the other. And uh, while I've never been to, where does he play Wigan? Yep. While I've never been to Wigan, I dare say it's probably not the metropolis or, or cosmopolitan type of mecca that Milan is. And in the inevitable compare and contrast that the young man did, I'm not sure how Wigan as a place fared. But he's got he's to go back. And at least, if nothing else, his brand, I guess, has been improved by the fact that AC Milan even entertained this and entertained it to the degree that it was just for whatever reason, not done at the at the last minute. So it sucks for him, but welcome to the strange world of international soccer. Did you in your career ever have uh, a move that looked like it might happen and then fell through that you were really disappointed that you didn't get to go there and you kind of look back with regret? Is, was there anything like that? I mean, that? I got traded a lot. And so at the times of those trades, I knew, some of them I knew I was on the trading block and I knew things were, were going to happen and I had preferences and... Thankfully, at times they were. I was accommodated to the extent that you can without hurting the team that you are coming from. But I never. I had plenty of disappointments at times in my in my life. But I think this one, this is this is kind of it, it, this one messes with your mind a little bit if you are a young player and this type of the the headlights of AC Milan. Still, what AC Milan represents. I know it's not what it used to be, but still having the possibility of being an AC Milan player. That must have been devastating. Yeah, I mean, Robinson did nothing wrong here. He's the no, victim. No, no. But it, it did evoke memories in my mind of the Peter Odemwingi situation, which was my first season at Fox. We were still covering the Premier League. He was a player who uh, was all set on deadline day, January, to go from West Brom to QPR. He was led to believe that it was a done deal. He got in his car and drove... <laughs> to uh, <laughs> London, and by the time he arrived, the deal had fallen through, and so they didn't even let him through the gates. They said, no, you're not authorized to be here, and he, he had to turn around and drive back. <laughs> wow. That was kind of a famous incident. Shifting gears to Germany, where we have a new leader, Alexi. Uh, this yes, past we weekend, Bayern Munich leapfrogged Leipzig in the table. Bayern won 3-1 away to Mainz. Leipzig were held to a 2-2 draw at home against Gladbach. Bayern now host Leipzig this upcoming weekend. It's funny, you and I had a similar take 
uh, to the Leipzig-Gladbach game. Because they were down 2-0 at the half and mm-hmm. it ended 2-2, a lot of people were trying to put a positive spin mm-hmm. on it, that they showed real fight back. Nagelsmann but screaming and yelling. I, and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. Coming off a bad there. loss to Frankfurt and with Bayern having won earlier in the day, a real championship team <laughs> steps up a commanding performance and gets the three points. And I, to me, Leipzig, I, to me, still feel very wobbly. And, and I didn't come away with a good feeling from that game. And now they have to go to the Allianz Arena. So I, we'll, I completely agree. And, and it was interesting because we were sitting next to, uh, we were doing the games this week and I was sitting next to Ian Joy. And he was much more on the, on the this is a, a positive, able to come back and stuff like that. I, I didn't see it as the work of a potential champion uh, title contender or a competitor. And that's weird. And maybe it's just a, a one-off thing, but... This is a team that a lot of people, including myself, have talked about as the legit challenger because Gladbach has kind of come and, come and gone. Dortmund, maybe there's a renaissance here. But the reality is that if there was anybody, especially over the last couple of months, that you would point to and say, now that's the team that's really going to challenge, it's going to be Red Bull but you, or RB Leipzig. But you can't, you can't afford to do uh, these types of things. I mean, to, but to your point overall right now, and look, yes, we televised the Bundesliga and so we're, we're part of it. You're going to watch it or you're not. But if there was ever a moment to check out the Bundesliga, and as we know, it's going to uh, ESPN and our colleagues over there are going to take it and do great things. This is a moment, especially with what's going on in the EPL right now with Liverpool running away with it. This is going to be a fight to the finish, except for Bayern Munich, which is right back where we've, we've seen them so many times. And they have got to be saying, all right, this is where we thrive in this moment. And Dortmund are flying 5-0 winners over Union Berlin. They've scored 15 goals in their first three games since the winter break. Now, keep in mind, they face Augsburg, Cologne, and Union Berlin. Not exactly a murderer's row right. of opponents. So this upcoming weekend will be their first big test of 2020. They're away to Leverkusen. That's the other big game that everybody's looking forward to. You know, Holland, by the way, two of the goals this weekend, seven in his first three games. You know, Sirius XM FC, uh, they put up a lot of poll questions. They had one a couple of weeks ago that was absolutely shocking, asking uh, who would you rather have, uh, James Madison or Jaden Sancho, which talk about Premier League goggles, actually thinking that those two players are on the same <laughs> level. But they actually came up with a good one this week. Who would you rather have your club sign, Jaden Sancho or Erlen Holland, who, keep in mind, are both 19-year-olds shining for Dortmund? Oh, Holland. Holland, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a reason why all the attention and money and fame and everything goes to the people that score the goals. And it's not that Jaden Sancho can't score score goals. I just think, especially in this day and age where they are few and far between those guys, you know, so many people don't play two players up top. So many people play with the tip of the spear and stuff like that. And so finding your Lewandowski type of player I think it's just rare. I think it's just a, a even rarer commodity and that it's the goal scorer makes it that much more valuable. It's funny how with Dorman, how quickly it changes who the hot new star is. Right. Now you see Jaden Sancho being interviewed talking about Holland and Sancho almost feels like an elder statesman talking about the kid. The who's kid's coming alive. along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to mentor him. him. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny. They're both 19. <laughs> and actually, Bundesliga.com had a great article this week talking about how Royce has been the common link in all these great uh, Dortmund front threes. They had a picture of him back in the day with Lewandowski and Gutze, then one with him with Aubameyang and Usman Dembele, and now one with uh, Sancho and Erlen Holland. So it's kind of neat he's how he's the, seen the, all these the players. Touch. 
that touch. Uh, speaking of Usman Dembele, that makes for something of a segue here because he left Dortmund to go to Barcelona, and we're going to yep. end on Barcelona. Dembele, by the way, he's been out since November. He was supposed to come back this month, but I, I read today he got re-injured in training, so uh, I'm about to give up on that guy, which is a shame because he's so talented. But there's another uh, young winger that everybody at Barcelona is excited about. 17-year-old Ansu Fati scored both goals this past weekend in a 2-1 home win over Levante. Both goals assisted by Messi and people saw some symbolism there. There's actually some talk that Barcelona may have found the successor here. Uh, is that a little too much pressure to put on a 17-year-old well, young man? Is he uh, El Futuro? I don't know. Is he? Uh, is this? Is this it? Are we really seeing it? I mean, well, first off, is it too much pressure? No, because being a phenom and being young, that's that's what we do, and it happened to everybody, whether it's Neymar or or uh, or Messi or anybody else, and some of them pan out and some of them don't. So I don't think comparing him to one of the greats, if not the greatest to ever play the game in Messi, is necessarily unfair given his age, given where he's playing, and given what he has already proven that he can do at this uh, at this level. Do you do you think it's unfair or do you think it's reasonable? Well, the, the interesting thing for me, uh, you know, back in the day, you remember back in the day. I remember the day, yes. When Barcelona used to trot out lineups with seven or eight homegrown La Masia uh, products while Real Madrid was spending money like crazy. Barcelona took great pride in that. The rivalry oh. was framed as cantera versus cartera. Cantera in Spanish means youth system. Cartera means wallet. And in the last few years, Barcelona have kind of lost that moral high ground. They've gotten caught up in the super club arms race and, and yeah. spent money like crazy. In fact, if you look up the biggest transfers in football history right now, there's three Barcelona ones before there's any Madrid one right. with Griezmann, How do you say Coutinho, and uh, Cartera. Cartera. Donde esta mi Cartera? Yes. That's the new phrase for Barcelona. By the way, can, can we talk about how impressive my Chicharito State of the Union read was? It was After very you were good. done with yours, I did one just for, just it for kids. It was very good. Uh, in any event... Portuguese. In any but. event, uh, this Ansu Fati thing is allowing Barcelona fans to dredge up that narrative again because here at Real Madrid is spending all this money on these Brazilian teenagers. It's been a combined 120 million euros on Vinicius Jr., Rodrigo, and Henier, while Barcelona have this youth product who they spent nothing on. And, you know, listen, there, there's a, who knows, there's a hit or miss quality sure. with all these teenagers, but he looks just as likely to turn into a star as any of those three Brazilians. So kudos to Barcelona on that. But kudos, but it's, it's also <laughs> the unique aspect of when you talked about what happened with Messi and that, that generation uh, from La Masia. It was He was surrounded by others that matriculated up in, the, in that group. This is just a, I don't know if it's a one-off, a one-off thing. They'll take it. Don't get, don't get me wrong. They'll, they'll, they'll take it right now, but... It's, it's fun to see, and it's fun to see because oftentimes in the U.S. we talk about we don't want to put too much pressure. We don't want to break the kid or anything like that, but this is, this is the type of pressure at a young age that if they are able to withstand it and at times live up to it, I don't always live up to it, but live up to that type of comparison and pressure, that's what makes the greatest players in the world, all right? Not, notwithstanding the fact that Messi has been in an incubator and in a, a warm cocoon all of his life, but still... From a, a young age, he was touted and talked about, and he lived up to it, and that's what great players do. And I did a Mossy Makes the Case about this a couple months ago, but it's been a really fun subplot in La Liga this season to have all these young starlets, Ansu Fati breaking through at Barcelona, João Felix trying to live up to that trying. price tag at Atletico and really struggling right now, the Brazilians at Real Madrid, Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr., Martin Odegaard having this incredible renaissance at Real Sociedad. So it's been a really interesting kind of fun subplot to see all these young players and, and their ups and downs and, and, and think about where they're going to be in the next few years. Well, we come to the end of yet another pod, and at the end of each pod, as you know, or as you found out last week, we are uh, finishing it off with 
our uh, what are we talking? What are we calling it again? Uh, there, Alex. One for the road. One for the road. All right. So gone is the uh, old thing that we used to do. Our one big thing, and we're doing one for the road, and it's uh, it's big event related. We started off the pod talking about the Super Bowl. And as we head into the next few weeks, the 25th anniversary of Major League Soccer is upon us. And I think back to the beginning of Major League Soccer, back when we just were dying to get as any attention that we possibly could. The first MLS Cup uh, way back in 1996 was at the old, would have been Foxborough Stadium in Foxborough, uh, Massachusetts. I was playing at the time for the New England Revolution. I was not in MLS Cup because we were not a very good team. We did not even make the playoffs. Uh, however, we were trying to fit as many well-known faces in as possible. At, time, at the time, I had a well-known face for, uh, <laughs> for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the way the, uh, the hair was placed on my face. But uh, over the years, I have sung the national anthem at different sporting events baseball events, basketball events, events. I, I've sung it before a um, national team game that I've actually then gone and played. I think I might have said that, uh, talked about before. But in this case, this was the first MLS Cup. And they came and they asked me, hey, you, you're going to be around. Uh, will you play the national anthem? I said, no problem. You know, I've done it before. That's oh, all fine. For those that remember back in 1996 in MLS Cup, it was DC United versus the Los Angeles Galaxy. And it is known for a number of things, not the least of which is that DC United uh, won and started kind of a, uh, a juggernaut that was DC United back there. Eddie Pope scored the golden goal, if you will, uh, in... Uh, overtime, extra time, whatever you want to uh, call it. I can't remember what we called it back then. But it was in a a monsoon, if you will. It was absolutely pissing down from start to finish in that game. If you ever watch highlights, you see players sliding through, uh, tobogganing through, basically, and hydroplaning through on an incredibly soaked field. It was not only raining, it was thundering, it was lightning, it was all this kind of stuff. And uh, we were talking earlier about lip syncing and all that kind of stuff. There was no way that I was going to lip sync. We certainly didn't have the technical capabilities to do that type of stuff. The one thing that I agreed to do was um, the thing that was plugging into my guitar, we switched it out. The concern was that because of the water and stuff like that, that I was going to get electrocuted. Now, listen, you're out there on an MLS cup, you gotta entertain. We talked about entertaining and performing. A live execution of uh, one of the marquee players in the league. I think you know I would have taken one for the uh, one for the team there. It went off fine. You can actually find it out there on YouTube. I did my thing. I do a very folksy and short type of uh, national anthem. The last instructions I got as I walked out to the microphone with my with my guitar, and so they did basically two microphones, one for my voice, one for my guitar, so as not to have any lines and stuff like that. The last advice I got was, do not whatever you do touch the microphone, either the one for the vocals or the one for the uh, guitar, because they were so worried about me getting uh, electrocuted. I did not get electrocuted. Uh, the game went on. We will be celebrating all through the year this 20th, 25th anniversary of Major League Soccer. We'll be telling you different things about stuff that happened, especially all the Wild West type of stories that happened back in the day. I can't believe that it's been 25 years. It seems like yesterday that I was walking out deathly afraid of being electrocuted in front of a live uh, national television audience back there. But it's, it's come and gone, and it's amazing what has happened uh, on and off the field. Uh, but there was no lip syncing, uh, and I didn't get electrocuted, so I call it a success, if you will. Uh, Mossy, anything uh, before we head out? 
No, except to say this was Alex Dowd, show number two on the mic. Did, did, did we see some improvement this week? Because th- it was a shock. I think he idea. was much more efficient, and therefore the things that he said were, I don't want to, I'm going to use the term riveting, but I'm using that very, very loosely. But I think that, I think he's improved, okay? I think that there is reason to call him back in to the team uh, next week with the microphone involved. Anything to say before we go, Alex? No, that'll be it for me. Whew, there it is. All right. I mean, uh, this is the only place you can go for that type of hard-hitting analysis slash entertainment, right? All right, we will see you again next week. Uh, please do use the hashtag Ask Alexi, the hashtag Ask Mossy. Send us your comments, questions, concerns. Please continue to download. We thank you so much for uh, uh, downloading and reviewing and subscribing and doing all the things uh, that you do uh, with regards to the State of the Union. It's an absolute privilege and a pleasure to give it to you each and every week. And we will see you again right here next week. Size the day. 